0: Good morning, good afternoon, and Erev Tov to everyone joining us from America, Israel, and around the world. My name is Rabbi Jeremy Stern, and I am the Director of International Partnerships at Torah Stone. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the 10th Shiyur in our OTS Presents Zoom series. Today's Shiyur promises to be spectacular, but more on that in just a moment. We are once again dedicating today's shiur in in merit of those who are suffering from from COVID-19 and are in need of healing, and in memory of those who have succumbed to this terrible illness. May their memory be a blessing. For those who are joining us today by computer, I want to remind you that there is a Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. If you have a question during the shiur, please feel free to send it to us by using the Q&A button. Allow me to also take this opportunity to thank a few of my colleagues who have helped coordinate today's shiur. Much thanks to, to our deus ex machina, David Frankel, as well as to David Katz, Rabbi Chaim Kantoravitz, Yishai Hughes, the zoo maven, Dina Engstreich, and of course, our president in Rosh Yeshiva, Rabbi Dr. Kenneth Brander. Now, with your permission, it gives me great pleasure to introduce today's speaker. El Nitzanim was born in Brazil, raised in South Florida, and now lives in Jerusalem, and is a fellow at Oratora Stone's Susie Bradfield, Women's Institute of Halachic Leadership. WIHL, as it is known informally, is an extraordinary five-year full-time Torah learning program for women, which parallels the course of study followed by men working towards rabbinic ordination. This trailblazing OTS program is enabling supremely qualified women to achieve new heights in the study of Jewish law and establish themselves as spiritual leaders and halachic experts throughout Israel. Ravanid Yael earned her bachelor's degree at Princeton University, where she majored in Linguistics and Judaic Studies. She was also the Rosh Beit Midrash at Camp Stone for three summers, served as Rosh Chinuch at Mosheva Beir, New Jersey, and taught at Princeton's Center for Jewish Life. Today, she is entitled, Navigating the Halachic Challenges of a Corona Wedding. Without further ado, I turn over the virtual podium to Rabbanit Yael Nitzanim.
1: i going to pull up our slideshow that we'll be using today. Thank you everyone for joining. Um, this has been a unique year at WIHL for many reasons, but most importantly, because while usually we learn one topic per year, whether it be Shabbat or Kashrut, uh, or nidah. This year, we were split. Uh, in th- we split the year into two halves. The first half of the year, we learned tefillah and brachot. And so, just as I was getting an appreciation for my newfound fluency for all matters related to minyan and the and the world of tefillah, uh, minyan ceased to exist. Uh, and that was a pretty disappointing situation. But the second half of the year, which we began right before uh, the pandemic hit. Uh, was is dedicated to studying the laws of Kupava Kiddushin, of the Jewish wedding. Um, and so all of a sudden, unexpectedly, I must say for myself at least, we, we had so many practical scenarios that related directly to what we were learning. And so I, I just want to take a moment before we start going through our sources to, to, to show appreciation and gratitude for the program and all of its supporters um, for allowing me this really powerful experience of despite all of the different structures that fell, um, that we're familiar with in our lives, whether it be spending time with family or all of other social interactions the way that we know it um, and estrangement from communal Jewish life as we know it, the ability to see the Halakhic sources still speaking so powerfully and so directly to the scenarios that were going on around us uh, was an incredible experience for me and I'm very grateful for that opportunity. If we take a look at the questions we'll be um, looking at today, these are some of the issues that arose during weddings that were held over this this past period of the pandemic, what we like to call Corona wedding. Um, Most of these questions, as you can see, uh, all with the exception of one, deal with questions relating to who is present and presuming uh, a limited number of people in attendance. Um, So although, today in Israel, and I presume, and I think in many places already in America, um, the restrictions on how many people can be at a given gathering has already become a little bit more flexible, has already increased. Um, these questions, I think, which really are most relevant to cases, especially when, when the cap number was 10 people, uh, 10 or 20, but um, they're still so relevant, I think, in terms of, they're, first of all, they're fascinating questions, halakhically, uh, that I think really portray the way that um, halachic material can be, can be worked with in order to relate to any circumstance um, that arises. Um, and hopefully they, they won't be so relevant moving forward. Um, but but I, I did wanna bring them for their interesting, I think, um, window into the way that the halachic system works, especially from the perspective of someone who, who's still within this world of learning halakha and, and discovering all of its intricacies. So with that, we'll get started. Our first question that we'll deal with is, is it necessary for me to have a Masadr or Kiddushin? Or typically, a rabbinic authority that presides at the wedding and makes sure that all of the matters, uh, all the halakhic matters run smoothly. So the, the Gemara in Kiddushin 6a already addresses this issue, or, or says at least, that someone who is not an expert in the laws of divorces and marriages, they should not deal with that. Um, That is the direct quote that that the Shulchan Aruch ends up bringing. That's the emphasized part that you see there in orange. The rest of what the Shulchan Aruch codifies in this rule is influenced by Rashi's commentary on that Gemara. Rashi there implies that the reason for this ruling is because we don't want a Dayan or a judge who's not totally comfortable or totally knowledgeable in these areas to be dealing with them in court. Because he may come to Ur and permit an impermissible woman creating a situation. So for example, he may allow a woman to remarry that is still bound in a halachic marriage and therefore is not able to be remarried. And those cases could cause mamzerim or children that emerge from illegitimate or or non halachic relationships. And therefore, according to Rashi, this, this whole ruling that someone who's not an expert in laws of marriage and divorce should not deal with marriages and divorces um, relates only to the dayan, only to the judge. The Beit Shmuel, who is a one of the primary commentaries found um, responding directly to the Shulchan Aruch, um, in Evan HaEzer, which is the book that deals with these laws of marriage and divorce, comments, bringing the taz, saying that this is specific, this rule, to teaching the laws, that is what is prohibited and and judging, but being the Masader Kiddushin, being the person who officiates at a wedding and just is there to make sure that the halachot, that all the halach technicalities that could go wrong, just to make sure that they go right, that person doesn't have to have any official certification or ordination in these laws. The prohibition that the Gemara and the Shulchan Arif is bringing relates specifically to teaching, uh, maybe perhaps as Rashi suggested to judging officially in a, in a court in those matters, but certainly not, says the, the Beit Shmuel, certainly not in cases where uh, of, of being a Masada or Kedushin at a wedding. That said, the Pidchei Tshuva, which is a 19th century index of responsa works, of later responsa, uh, quotes the, the Shvut Yaakov, a responsa by Rav Yaakov Reischer from the turn of the 18th century, saying that really ideally an expert should be the Messiah or He doesn't only oppose what the Beit has brought earlier, but he says something that I think is pretty compelling, which is that the custom to not hold a wedding without a, a, such a, such a rabbinical authority makes sense. There's a reason for it. There are just so many little parts of a wedding that could go wrong. Some of them, if they're not done exactly the way they're supposed to be, okay, in retrospect, it's not a big deal, but ideally they should be done properly. But others might constitute major slip ups that we actually need to be very, very careful of. And so because of this multitude of opportunities to really mess up, we really want someone who knows what they're doing. So says the Petri Chuba, not only do I think that, this is, that it is required to have a rabbi there, I also think that there is really good reason why that's the case. Today, I believe, most people are so unsure of how to officiate at a Jewish ceremony, um, and therefore not having a rabbi present, forget Corona for a second, just not inviting a rabbi to be the Messiah or would never cross anyone's minds, right? That's one of the first things you want to make sure you take care of, trying to think through who's going to be the rabbi. But it would never cross our minds to not have a rabbi there, and I think the reason for that is pretty similar to what The Pichet is suggesting there's just so much that could go wrong. A lot of us are unfamiliar with these rules and we just want to make sure that someone is taking care of making sure every rule is followed and every halakhic requirement is upheld. That said, if for whatever reason there's a family member who maybe doesn't have official certification but feels like they're very comfortable with these rules, maybe they're just very curious and they've looked up these rules before or they're very attentive at different weddings that they've been to, or maybe even there's a situation where someone um, feels that they can have a rabbi on the phone or a rabbi zooming into the wedding in a way that doesn't require having the rabbi take up or waste one of the, one of the very precious spots we have at these limited weddings. Um, I think there would be room to say, based on the Beit Shmuel, that the rabbi might not have to be physically present as long as someone who feels competent and feels that they are comfortable with all of the halachic um, necessities of of enacting a kosher wedding is is present and and can make sure that they're uh, at, or has a rabbi on the phone that they can be in touch with, making sure that the the wedding is running smoothly from a halachic perspective. All right, the next question we're going to be dealing with over the course of the next two slides are: Do we need uh do we need a minion? for the wedding in general. Now it's in, or, in order to understand that we have to understand a little bit of background about the Jewish wedding which is that there are two parts that the wedding is comprised of, one called kiddushin also known as erusin which means the betrothal stage and Nisuin, which is the wedding stage. And though today at our weddings they are together often, they're, we usually only come to one wedding ceremony, not two, um, however they are halakhically distinct and as we'll see, those distinctions um, define them in ways or define them in ways that are really critical um, and, and make them distinct in ways that are very important for us to be aware of. One of those elements that exist in both, but we'll see throughout the next few slides, might be different, especially for our purposes, is that there are there's a set of blessings for each um, component of the wedding. The first component, the kidushin has what we refer to as birkat erosin or the betrothal blessing, and the second half of the wedding, the nisu'in component, has a set of brachot referred to either as birkot chatzanim, the groom's blessings, or more commonly known as the Shava brachot. So look, we're going to split up these questions of do we need a minyan as do we need a minyan for kiddushin, and then we're going to ask a separate question, which is do we need a minyan for nisu'in, and we're going to see how those answers may be different. All right, the first thing that's important to keep in mind is that birkat ni suin, um, the blessings that we say at the second ceremony are assumed to need a minion and we'll see that soon, as soon as we get to that slide. Um, because it's clear in the Gemara, it seems clear from the Gemara as we'll see, but the birkat irusin, the blessing of the first half is not necessarily discussed. It's not very clear whether we need a minion or not. In that vein, the tour. Um, brings a, a contradiction, conflicting opinions between two main camps. The first camp is the opinion of, of Rav Shmuel Hanagid that says that Bilkat el the blessing that we say in the betrothal ceremony, does not require a minyan. However, says the tour, not everyone agrees with him. Rav Hai um, wrote that it does require a minyan. And not only does Rav Hai think that, but the Rush, the Tor's father, agrees with that opinion. Usually the Tor Uh, will bring the opinion of his father and 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 bring that as the final conclusion. But here he brings the two conflicting opinions so we can see that it's already not clear-cut what the what the answer should be. The Beit Yosef, which I did not bring here, but the Beit Yosef, who which is a commentary on the tour written by Rav Yosef Karo himself who ultimately comes to write the Shulchan Aruch. So the Beit Yosef, the way the Beit Yosef works is that usually it's it, unlike the Shulchan Aruch that tried to maybe update the tour into a more clear-cut halakhic compendium. So the Beit Yosef does ex- the exact opposite. It takes the tour and expounds and gives all of the the reasonings or all the sources that have influenced whatever opinions the tour has brought. And so in the Beit Yosef, um, we can find an explanation, a potential understanding of this contradiction between Shmuel HaNagid and Rav Gon. According to Rav HaIgaon and the Rush there is an equation here between the Chatanim, the blessings in the second ceremony which we've already mentioned require a minyan and therefore there's a re- there's reason to assume according to Rav HaIgaon and the Rush that also birkat erusin would require 10 why not right there should be a pa- they should be parallel they're, they're both blessings that appear in two dis- two parallel parts of the wedding ceremony or two complementary parts of the wedding ceremony And so it would make sense to assume that if one needs 10, the other needs 10. However, um, Shmuala Nagi disagrees with this. First of all, he says, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be parallel. Just because we um, require a, a minyan, that doesn't necessarily mean that Kiddushin does. As we know, they're two distinct ceremonies. But furthermore, as we might know, we know that kiddushin requires at least two people besides the chatan and the kalah, besides the guru and the bride to be present, and those are the adim, right? Kiddushin without these two witnesses is not complete. And so, says the um, Shmuel HaNagid, the minute we know that there is a requirement for two people to be there, it sounds like only two people need to be there, not 10. If we needed to have two adim plus eight others, um, or seven, if we're gonna count the chatan, right? So that would have been specified, it's not. And the fact that we have this notion of two other people necessary to be present at this betrothal stage means automatically that there must not be a requirement for a minyan. Okay, so usually when you read a bit Yosef, if there isn't a clear cut answer of what the halacha should be, if you just hold on to your suspense long enough and flip the pages to the Shulchan Aruch, um, you'll come to see that what, what, the, what Rav Yosef Karo decided should be codified in the Halakhic, um literature and so he says that Birkat erusin requires a minyan ideally right the ideal way is that there should be a minion. however as occurs currently in most of the cases of of corona that occurred in the, in the beginning stages of the pandemic that just wasn't possible there were so many cases where a minyan just wasn't possible so what do we do when the Shulchan Aruch says what happens when it's not an ideal situation? Says the Beit Shmuel, the commentator that we mentioned previously on the Shulchan Aruch, but if there aren't 10 people, there's no prevention of saying the blessings. Meaning, it's okay, we can still say those blessings despite there being, or that, that blessing, we'll see soon, there's actually two, um, despite there being a lack of a minyan. um, And since this circumstance of, of the coronavirus, Definitely qualifies as a shah hadchak. As an a non-ideal scenario, we would permit there not to be a minion and still allow the kiddushin to happen and still allow the birkat kiddushin to be said. So that's the first component of the uh, wedding, the kiddushin. Now, do we need a minion for the second component of the of the wedding, that being the nisuin? So, as I mentioned previously. It seems to be implied in two different Talmudic texts that there is a quorum of ten present at, a, at the nisu'in when the Birchot chatanim, when these blessings, also known as Shava brachot, are recited. The two sources are in Ketubot, where the, sh- the Gemara asks, where do we know, what is the source for the fact that Birchot chatanim require a minyan? Um, I'll leave you in suspense regarding what the sources actually are. But the the point here is that the Gemara is presuming that there must be a minyan. Similarly, in Masachem Megillah, there is a list of uh, events that require a minyan, and amongst those events um, are berchat chatanim, as we see in that second source on the screen. So the Beit Shmuel brings um, uh, the opinion of the Rashba that suggests that if you can't, have 10? Again, the same question, meaning it sounds like we do need to have 10, but what if that's just not possible? So it seems that according to the Rashba, brought in this third source by the Beit Shmuel, you just can't get married. There just cannot be Nisuin. Simple as that. And there are some other people that actually come and agree with the Rashba. Um, for our purposes, nowadays it sounds like coronavirus is the most, um, the most uh, practical case we can think of in which this might happen. But actually, if you read some of the other sources, especially some of the later responsa, this was actually a pretty common scenario that would happen often in communities in Europe where they just didn't have a minion. They didn't live in communities that had a minion minion frequently. And so sometimes being able to gather the necessary minion for Nisuin was challenging. And some of the sources say you have to go to the greatest extent to try to bring people over from the town next door or whatever it is. But essentially, if you can't bring those people over, then you just can't get married. So the Rashmah's view actually ends up being held by some other later Halakhic authorities. That said, the Darkei Moshe, which is Rav Moshe Isserlis, writes that the lack of blessings do not prevent the mitzvah of being able to be enacted. So if we can't, if we don't have a minion and therefore we cannot say the Bechot Nisuin, then it's okay, the Nisuin can still come into effect, we just won't be able to say the brachot. I just brought the Pitré Um, Sometimes the term e-brachot me'agvot gets a little confusing what exactly that's referring to. Um, so I brought the Pitré tshuva that makes it pretty clear that in non-ideal circumstances, if we cannot bring a minion, the marriage still happens, everything's okay. As he says, brachot. it's okay, she'll just get married and there won't be any, any blessings. So just to clarify, that there is a distinction here from what we've seen before between needing a minyan for the ceremony of misuin versus needing a minyan for the bracha or the brachot that appear in this ceremony, namely the sheva brachot. When there are not 10 people, I'm gonna kind of make a, a tower with my hands here, the, brach, the misuin, the ceremony of, of uh, the wedding requires brachot, comes with brachot, and the brachot require a minyan. If the minyan is not there, that falls away, then the brachot do not get said, that falls away. But the bottom pillar of nisuin that remains, that does not, that is not affected by the lack of a minyan or the lack of brachot that ensue because of it. Okay, now we're going to address one of the questions that did not have anything to do with who's present and who is not present. And that is a question of whether the Mesader Kidushin, um, if, if he ends up being present, uh, needs to drink from the cup of wine. Now, this is going to take us, just to be clear, back to the Kidushin ceremony, okay? The reason we scooted a little bit into Misu'in, into the second um, phase of the wedding, is because we wanted to look at this question more broadly of whether we need a minion for a wedding in general, and we have to split that into two questions. What, do we need a minion for, for Kijushin for the betrothal? Do we need a minion for Nisuin for the wedding um, element of the, of the marriage? Um, we are now going to go back to that first um, phase of the wedding, back to the betrothal ceremony. The Shulchan Aruch says that when we say that Birkat erusin that we just discussed, it is tradition to say it over a cup of wine. And therefore, what ends up happening, I hinted at this before when I said there end up being two blessings at the Kidushin. because we are joining a bracha on a cup of wine to the birkat erusin, the blessing on the betrothal, we will have to make a borei priyagafen because we're about to have a cup of wine. So that will, would mean that we will first say a borei priyagafen, and then we'll say the blessing, the berkat hamitzvah, the blessing on the event that's about to take place, which is the kiddushim. This structure is familiar to us from kiddush on a Friday night or on any given day, for that matter. We're on any, on any sanctification of chagim, right? That's what I meant by any given day. On any chag that we have, that we first start by saying, borei priyagafen, that's the Birkat Hanahanin, as we call it, blessings that are made on foods, drinks, or other types of benefit. That precedes a much longer blessing that we say on Friday night of Asher Kinishanam Mitzvotavaratavanu, right? That's already part of the Birkat Mitzvah, which allows us to sanctify the Shabbat, the Mitzvah there being sanctification of the day. So we have the Mitzvah, we have the blessing on the Mitzvah. But to make it more significant, more symbolic, we, we do it over a glass of wine, which is pretty similar to a toast, right? We just, it just becomes much more uh, festive if we have a glass of wine, and we apply that to weddings as well. We want to have this Birkat Kiddushin, this blessing over the betrothal that's about to take place. We want to have it said over this festive glass of wine. Now, in order to understand the answer to our question of whether the Masadir Kiddushin needs to drink from the wine, we have to understand the technical halachic differences between these two categories of brachot, namely the berachat mitzvah, the blessing over the mitzvah that's about to happen, and the birkat ha the blessing over the wine, all right, or, or over other foods, uh, other kinds of benefit. So what I want to bring is two examples that'll highlight this distinction. When we relate to birkot ha-mitzvah, I want us to keep in mind um, the example or the scenario of, hopefully most of us were able to partake in this ritual still in person this year, maybe perhaps the last ritual you took part in communally, which was reading Megillah, right? So we're going to imagine the scenario of being in Shul on Purim, about to hear the Megillah being read. That's going to be our our framework for understanding Birkot Mitzvah. And the Birkot HaNihanim, I want us to imagine being at a, a Shabbat dinner or Shabbat lunch table with guests and the and one of the people at the table is about to make hamotzi over the challah for for everyone present okay so that's going to be our our typical case for thinking about berkotah nehenin there are some parts of these two categories of berkot, the berkotah mitzvah and berkotah nehenin, that are similar which is that if I'm engaging in this act, if I'm about to engage in this mitzvah or about to engage in eating or drinking this food or drink, then I can make the blessing and include my audience or include everyone else who's there with me in my blessing, right? And we know that to be true from the both scenarios that I raised. In Megillah, the person reading the Megillah will say the blessing and thereby be motzi themselves Right, will we'll fulfill their own obligation of the blessing as they're about to fulfill their own obligation of doing the mitzvah, but simultaneously they're allowing us to fulfill our obligation of the mitzvah and the bless- blessing that they make for themselves will also count as our blessing. And so we say, amen, we usually don't make that blessing for ourselves, and then we engage in the mitzvah of hearing the megillah. Similarly, the person who's about to make the hamotzi on the challah Will make the blessing, everyone around the table will listen in, and by that person making the blessing, they are including themselves and all of the guests in the obligation of making a blessing before eating the bread. And then both they and everyone present will take part in eating the chal. So the similarity between those two blessings, the two, those two categories of brachot, is that if I'm, so long as I'm engaging in that activity, I can say the bracha and thereby help everyone else um, have fulfilled their obligation of saying the bracha. However, the difference between a birkat mitzvah and birkat nehenin is that while in a birkat mitzvah I can be, I can help someone else fulfill their obligation even if I'm not about to do that mitzvah myself, that does not apply to birkat nehenin. What do I mean by that? I mean that maybe some of us have had a situation where we didn't make it to Shul and therefore someone came over to our house, maybe even someone who's already read Megillah earlier that day in Shul, they make it over to our house and they will say the blessing over the reading of the Megillah over our mitzvah to hear the Megillah and yet they're not fulfilling that mitzvah themselves just now, they're only saying the blessing so that I can fulfill my obligation of hearing the Megillah. And yet, it is okay that they should say that blessing despite having no ability, no um, intentions now to engage in this mitzvah, they're saying it for my for my sake. However, right, we, you, you might be familiar, or, or not familiar with the situation where, right, I'm sitting and about to eat a sandwich, and you come in and say for me, Habot amin and I take a bite. If you're not partaking in eating of my bread, then you cannot make that blessing for me. I have to make it for myself, and therefore we can see that there is a difference between birkot mitzvah, in which someone who's not about to engage in the activity can say the blessing for someone else, and birkot hanehanim, where unless you are partaking in the drinking or the eating, you cannot just say it for someone else on their behalf. Why is that relevant to nisuin to kiddushin? I'm sorry, because when the Masadir kiddushin, who is typically the person that says the Borei Puri and then the Bracha of Birkat Erosin, he then has said a Birkat Nehanin, Borei Puri and the Birkat Mitzvah of Birkat Erosin. Now, saying Birkat E-Rusin on behalf of the Chatan and Kala who are about to engage in this Mitzvah, nothing to do with the Mesader Kiddushin, right? The Mesader Kiddushin is not part of this Kiddushin. That said, there's no problem. This is like every single other case of Mitzvah or in our situation that we chose the Megillah, you can, the Masader Kidushin can make that blessing on their behalf, no problem. But how could the Masader Kidushin make the Borepri Hagafen a Berkatne Henin, if he does not intend to drink from that cup of wine? That cannot be according to what we just said. I cannot make that blessing for you if I don't intend to eat the challah. Because of that, the Machzor Vitri says, right, absolutely correct, indeed, the Masadir Kirushin needs to drink from the wine. It, because if he's going to make that blessing, then he needs to drink from the wine. And therefore the Masadir Kirushin should drink a little bit and then pass the cup to the groom and the bride to drink from it as well. That said, the Arif HaShulchan brings a really, um, a really innovative answer on how to avoid the Masadir Kirushin drinking the wine uh, and says that because here, the birkat nehanin, the blessing over the wine, is kind of subservient to the main blessing, which is the birkat HaMitzvah of birkat Erusin, meaning, I don't really want to drink a cup of wine right now. The only reason I'm making a Borei Priyagathen is because I've chosen to make this, this moment more significant, more symbolic. I've chosen to have a toast of sorts, and therefore, that's not the main blessing here. We're just saying it as a subservient blessing to the birkat HaMitzvah, Therefore, just like I don't have to partake in the mitzvah to say the berkat ha-mitzvah, in this case specifically, not in all cases of berkat ha but in this case specifically, I do not have to partake in the drinking of the wine, and I'm able to be motzi akhirim, I'm able to help others fulfill their obligation of saying this blessing, and say the blessing, and then let them drink from the wine. And therefore, says the Ara Hashulchan, Khan, the mesader kiddushin can, say the blessing over beri ber, ber, pragafen, say the berkat kiddushin, and then hand the cup to the chatan and kalah to drink without drinking from the cup himself. Today, the standard minhag is, not, is for the Masader mes- kiddushin not to drink from the cup. It is rare that at weddings he would take a sip. That said, Reb Chaim Salavichik was machmir because of the concerns that we explained up until now and because of the concerns of the machzor vitri, um, Reb Chaim was, was machmed to make sure that he did sip some of the wine, and therefore, many of his followers, specifically many people today in the brisk community, will actually take a sip um, before passing it over to the Khatar and the kala. And so despite the fact that for most of us this should not usually come up at a rutting where we might be anxious that in the times of corona, where we're trying to have heightened sensitivity to germ-sharing, We usually would would not have to worry about the scenario at a wedding. That said, if uh, the Mesader Kiddushin is someone who actually is careful to drink some of the wine, I think that in this scenario, considering our sensitivities and considering the high health risk, um, the Mesader Kiddushin can uh, rely on the the chidush of the arach of and not take a sip from the wine and pass the cup directly to the chatan and the kala, the bride and the groom, and let them drink alone all right our next question is going to revolve around idim around the witnesses at the wedding before we go into the question that i want to spend most of our time on it's just important to mention one of the questions that i did not bring sources to just because it's it's pretty obvious in the halakhic literature that this is the case um, it's it's um not very debated just because it's pretty pretty solidified, is that we need to have two Eidim at the, at the kidushin. We're still in the first part of the ceremony. Um, but those Eidim cannot be related to either the Chatan, the groom, or the Kala, the bride, or to each other. I say that because one of the most common issues that could come up in, in these Corona weddings is perhaps one of the most basic undisputed issues, which is if you're only doing a family wedding in your backyard, And only the closest of family members can be present, you're going to run into an issue which is no one can be your ADIM. Right? If it's only the bride's parents and siblings and the groom's parents and siblings available, so none of those people can be kosher ADIM. All right, you might say. Not a big deal. We have really close family friends. They live next door. We'll just ask our neighbors if you don't mind. Can you and your son come over to be our item, you can even maybe like stand like at the border between your backyard and our backyard. It's perfect. We don't even have to count you as one of our 10 or 20 people. No, they are related to each other and therefore they cannot be kosher AIDIM for this wedding together. They cannot be co AIDIM. So it is important and this is maybe one of the most important and fundamental parts of the wedding and therefore so easy to forget up until, you know, I don't know, the night before the wedding to realize, oh no, no one present can actually be Aiden. There needs to be two people who are not related to each other nor to the couple in order to be Aiden. Uh, I have a friend who who, um, had this case happen to them, they got married in their parents' backyard, and I asked them, I I thought thought this was a perfect opportunity to get all the juicy details uh, about how how they managed it halakhically uh, as a student, a pretty nerdy one at that. I thought this was, you know, so exciting, I can finally hear what happened at this corona wedding from a halakhic perspective. And my biggest question that I was most excited to ask was, "Who were your aid in?" So the answer in this case was that the they did have a Masader Kedushin present, so their Masader Kedushin was not related to them, and therefore counted as one of their aid in. And the other aid was their photographer. So many couples um, have been going through the decisions of which professionals. Um, to, to still, which vendors, to still include in their wedding and which not. So all of a sudden family members became the photographer, family members became the technical you know, live stream personnel. Um, but if you're debating whether or not to include your photographer or have a relative be the one to photograph the wedding, this might be a good reason why you might want to insist on having a photographer there because if they're not related and they are a kosher witness, then they can be the second person to be a witness when, uh, when the numbers are tight. So that was just a, a fundamental point about who can be the ADIM um, that came up for almost every couple that, that had these um, condensed weddings. However, the question that I really want to look into is, can the ADIM follow the government protocol of standing, whether it's two meters or six feet or any other um, governmental um, protocol? Do they, are they allowed to stand that far away? We know that often at weddings, the Adem come and like stand right in front of of the couple, often blocking the photographers. It's a big deal. Everyone gets upset at each other. um, And the Messiah or feels very strongly that they have to be right there, seeing the transaction, watching it happen. So could they stand two meters away? Is that even halakhatly permissible? So the Ramah, Rav Moshe Serlis, brings the Shud HaRashba, quoting the Rashba, that says that the witnesses actually have to see the giving of the ring, and if they only heard the groom proclaim, I'm about to, be, to betroth you with a certain object, and then later they see that, see that the bride has this object in her hand, that is not sufficient. They have to actually have seen the giving of the object, in most cases the ring, to the bride, following the proclamation of the um, chatan, that he's about to be this woman. The pitre chuba again, the, the index that brings all of these um, Responsa uh, quotes the Chavot Yair, and the Chavot Yair makes a very interesting distinction between the Rashba's case, he basically explains what the case was the Rashba was referring to, and weddings in our day and age. Says the Pitzchei or says the Chavot Yair rather, um, that in the, Ra- what's the case the is referring to? A case claims the Chavot Yair in which two witnesses are standing behind a gate, or behind a fence, they hear, they can't see what's going on. They hear the guru pro, pro, like proclaiming that he's about to be in a Kadesh, this woman, with this etrog. I don't know why. That's what he's about to do in this case. And um, they later see this uh, bride, this Kala, walking out with this etrog in her hand. So they assume that must have been the Kiddushin. They didn't see that with their eyes though. The reason that the Rashva says that is an invalid Kiddushin is because there are many per- per- permutations of insufficient uh, acts of kiddushin that could have occurred that would lead this kiddushin to be invalid. For example, if the groom um, handed the bride the object later, meaning he proclaims, Haria, Mikdash ali, but etrog haza. Other things happened in the wedding meanwhile, and at some point he was like, Oh, by the way, here's your etrog, and like casually handed it to her. That would not be sufficient for kiddushin because the giving of the etrog did not immediately follow the proclamation. Another example is that if he put it down in between proclaiming, and then he put it down on the table, and then she picks it up, so that's also not a halakhically permissible handing of the object to the woman, and therefore those are things that these two him on the other side of the fence might not have seen happen, and therefore they may end up saying that a kosher kudushin um, happened when in fact it did not. However, says the Chavot year, in our scenarios in today's day and age, which is already not our day and age, right, years back, the Chavot year suggests we are already doing weddings in these big crowds, these big gatherings with a pretty official procedure. Many examples in the Gemara and in the primary literature address cases of these rogue kiddushin, that seems to be that there is no one present except for the couple and these two adium in all different kinds of scenarios. They're on one side of a wall, the couple's in the other room, through they're looking through a hole. There are all these different scenarios that seem to indicate that this is not a wedding ceremony the way that we know it today. But today, when we follow a certain procedure that is pretty uniform across the board through all ceremonies, through all weddings we don't have to worry that some weird permutation might have occurred. And therefore, says the Chavo ear, even if when the groom is about to give the bride the ring, for whatever reason, the Idim heard him say, adzu, and then saw that a few seconds later, the ring was on her hand. But in that in between split seconds, something happened. Someone caught their attention, their daughter who's two years old screamed from the crowd and they got distracted and looked back. If for whatever reason something distracted them, they sneezed, who knows, and they were not able to see the exact transferring of the ring to the hand of the bride, it's okay because we presume that's exactly what happened. In today's ceremonies, very rarely would a groom put down the ring on a table and say to the bride, you pick it up or very rarely would we go on to the next step of the wedding before he's actually put it on her finger. And so we have much less reason for concern these days that there might be some fault in this transaction. And therefore, um, even, if the, uh, even if they miss that split second of transaction, it's okay. And so bringing it back to our question of, can the witnesses actually stand two meters away from the couple? Isn't that too far away? They might not actually see the giving. According to the Chavo Yair, that would be that. It's very hard to imagine that their two distance, um, their two meters of distance, would mean they would miss some problem in the transaction, and therefore we would have to say that it is totally fine for them to be standing that far away, um, and that people today should um, make sure to follow all the government um, uh, rules regarding distance at um, at a wedding. All right. Um, the next topic that I'm going to Going to address, we're now moving from the wedding ceremony itself into the week following the wedding, namely the Shava Brachot, um, the week of festivities that include a, a comeback of these Birkot Chatanim that we talked about before, of the seven blessings of the Shava Brachot. Now, in today's day and age, with the corona pandemic, we have faced a new challenge. And that challenge is, halachically, how to understand Zoom. What does Zoom do, right? So we're now all sharing a Zoom meeting, and the question becomes, are we thought of being in the same space, right? And this came up most commonly in terms of minion, in terms of davening. Can I consider myself being part of a minion if I'm on Zoom? And there were many different approaches to this, many different halakhic conclusions that came out of this question, and many different people did many different things. However, the, what I want to point out is that this question is a little bit different when it comes to Sheva Brachot, and for the following reason. Sheva Brachot have to be done, uh, or it can only be said, if there is a Minion present. If there is not a Minion present, we do not say Vishava Brachot. Um, however, it's not just that there needs to be a Minion present in the same space, the same way that we need a Minion in the same space for a for tfilah, Um the, the minyan needs to be present at a space specifically defined as, in Halakha, the Beit Chatanim, or the groom's house or the couple's space, which is debated in Halakha what exactly that means, whether that means the house of the Khatan and Kala, right, the groom and bride's new home, whether only uh, celebrations held in that space would qualify as um, the Beit Khatan, or whether any space, any home that decides to hold a celebration for the couple and invite others, even if it's not their own home, that space will automatically become the Beit Chatanim. So for example, one of the questions that we would have to think about this would be, um, now that it's more increasingly common to do Shava Brachot at a restaurant, so the minute that the Chatan and the Kala go to the restaurant together with 40 other friends or whatever it should be for the purposes of celebrating their wedding, can we call this restaurant a Beit Chatan, the home of the Chatan? And that's debated in Halachic literature, we're not going to get into it right now, but it's important to understand that the questions that we're going to be thinking about in asking whether joining a Sheva through Zoom is a little different than whether you can be on Zoom for Minion, because it's not just about, does Zoom unite us as if we were in the same space? It's, does Zoom unite us as if we were in the same Beit Chatanim? We might be able to claim that you and I are right now in the same virtual room. But I don't know if you would be able to call this room a bet So, another piece of important background, as we looked up the, as we get the sources, um, is that Rav Shachter, Rav Herschel Shachter from YU, uh, started releasing a series of halachic rulings relevant to questions that were arising as the pandemic spread, and they were titled Piskei Corona, right? Halachic halachic rulings about Corona, uh, and so in one of these um, Piskei Corona. Rav Shechter uh, claims two different things. Number one is that if there is actually Sheva Brachot happening in someone's home, let's say, with the maximum number of permitted people, but there is a relative who cannot be present and they try to join um, over Zoom, that relative may not recite one of the Brachot. They are not considered joining it. Not only that, however, but the, if there are Sheva Brachot that aren't happening in one space, but there are many people joining in through Zoom, meaning there is no minion in a house and someone else is joining in. Rather, every single family is joining in from their respective home. That does not, according to Rav Schechter, constitute a Beit Chatan. It does not constitute a space um, that everyone is, is in together and therefore you would not be able to recite the Shava Brachot. Now, Roshachter, the whole point of these Piskei Corona was that they were short to the point and just made sure that the information was related to the masses as many people had these questions on their minds, um, and often he did not um he did not follow through uh in the typical format of a response um, where you would bring all of the sources relevant to your questions to explain how you got to your final answer because that was not the point of his psaac um so i don't really know what sources uh, Rav Shachter had in mind when he came to this conclusion. That said, it reminded me of another source that I had seen in my learning, um, namely the Pitzchei Tshuva, who quotes the Zechariah LaAvraham, who was Rav Avraham Al kalai from the late 1800s, who says that there is it brings a debate about whether all people who are about to, to partake in this minyan for the sake of Shabbat Brachot have to have eaten at this meal, or whether them being in the same space, being in the Beit Chatan, qualifies. And I thought this source actually was pretty relevant to the question because it's clear that the people who are joining over Zoom are not joining in this meal, right? So even if we were to rule out that possibility, even if we were to say that, no, they don't have to actually eat from the meal, they just have to be in the same space, it seems that according to Rav the Zoom is like Zoom not, not a medium that, per, that permits us to claim that everyone is in the same space. Um, and so I just bring this example, at the end of the day, I don't know if I'm correct in, in this assumption, but just to give a window into how people who are studying halakha, such as myself, often will hear this rabbi said this, that rabbi said that, I have received this answer, and often we just hear the bottom line, they told me I could do X. And often what we'll do is automatically run through the sources in our heads that we're familiar with to try to see how could that rabbi have gotten to that conclusion. Sometimes we'll agree with the conclusion, sometimes we won't, but the most important is that we'll be able to run through the sources and have an understanding, have an appreciation for how they reached that conclusion. Um, and so I just wanted to bring this example mainly to show that, um, that even reading a bottom line conclusion given by Rochester, uh, it's pretty amazing to be able to think to myself, hmm, how, wh- what is he basing himself off of? He hasn't been very clear in his ruling. Uh, what do I think might have factored into his decision? And to be able to pull on sources that I've encountered in my learning kind of guess at what it might be that he's thinking about. All right, our last question that we're going to look at um, before we end tonight's Shi'ur is also uh, requires a little bit of introduction, which is that as as their name suggests, the Sheva Brachot um, are comprised of seven blessings, the last of which is Asher Barah. Now Asher Barah might be familiar to some, easily distinguished um, by, by its sing-sung tune at the wedding, right? It's that last blessing that usually the person who's making it at the wedding starts to sing and everyone joins in and there's a lot of clapping. Um, in, in Israel, there's even like a little like loop at the end of the, of the tune. Um, it's a song that's often sung at weddings and so it's, it's, it's set apart by, from all the brachot, but the truth is that its uniqueness is already addressed in the Gemara in Ketubot, in Ketubot 8a, and the Torah ends up bringing um, all these cases in which one would say the shavuot Brachot, sorry, one would not say the shavuot Brachot, but would still say Asher Barah. meaning despite the fact that Asher Barah is one of the seven blessings, there are times when we would not say the other six, but you would still say Asher Barah. I'll give some quick examples of what those would, would, um, would constitute. One example is for, exa- is, is, for instance, if there are no Panim Chadashot, if there are no new faces, um, new, new company that has not yet partaken in wedding celebration. Uh, if everyone at the Sheva Brachot has already been part of the wedding celebration thus far, then you would not say the Sheva Brachot in their entirety, but you would still say that final blessing of Asher Bara. Um, another example is that in second weddings, um, we only have Sheva Brachot for the first day following the wedding, but there are these other days called the Yamei Simcha, we won't really explain right now what they are, but some subsequent number of days in which Asher Barat would be recited, despite the fact that Sheva are only kept for the first day. In this context, um, the, the tour clarifies that some people think that Asher Barat requires a minion, but the Rush, his father, does not think so. The Beit Yosef, as we said, the commentator on the tour, brings a very similar debate between the Ran and the Ramban. The Ran actually himself quotes this debate between himself and the Ramban, suggesting that the Ramban believes that Asher Barah as being part of the shavah Brachot, being part of these Birkhot Hatanim, require, just like the Birkhot Hasanim in their entirety, a minion, right? So if I can't say the shavah Brachot without a minion present, why should I be able to say Asher Barah without a minion if it's part of the shavah Brachot? The Ran, however, does not agree. He sees Asher Barah as based on the Gemara and by the Torah as distinct from the Sheva Brachot, and therefore it has its own rules, and it does not require a Minyan. The Shulchan Aruch ends up ruling like the Ran and saying that despite there being um, no Minyan, even if there's no Minyan, you would still say Asher Barah, but you need to have a Zimun. You do need to have a quorum of three in order to say um, Asher Barah. So in these weddings, in in coronavirus times, even if you are not able to gather uh, a minion for Sheva Brachot festivity, as long as there are three um, people present, you would be able to still say this extra blessing of Asher Barah. The reason I want to bring that, and the reason I think it's a good place to end off on is because this is actually pretty relevant, not only in the times of the virus, right? There are many places. I know for myself personally, we did not have Sheva Brachot. Every single day of the week, there, were not always a, there was not always a minion present, um, and therefore this case comes up pretty commonly. That you might find yourselves either at a uh, a festivity that does not have a minion present, or even having your own uh, your your own or your own child's um, uh, meal in the span of the seven days following the wedding, during which there might not be a minion present. But so long as there are three, you would actually say Asher bara. And so I think it's fitting to end off on a note in which uh, on a halakhic case that actually is not justified defined by corona, it actually is much more applicable um, outside of these, of these few months in which we've been dealing with all these different new questions that have arisen uh, or new, new wedding cases that have arisen, the questions as we have just seen have been discussed already years before. Um, but the, my hope with ending off with this scenario is that we might be able to hope for days where uh, this question is really the only one that's relevant um, and not the others that we've unfortunately had to deal with, um, and with much hope that the, that the virus um, ha- ceases to affect us the way that it has in the previous month and that everyone should have a Rehru Ashley map. Thank you so much.
0: Avanit Yael, thank you so much for really a really fascinating presentation. Um, there were two questions that have been posed in the uh, Q&A box, uh, which I want to, uh, to raise to you, and we have just a few minutes left. And I'm sure that uh, both of these questions, each each could uh, be a she'er in and of themselves. Uh, going back to one of your first slides, where you talked about the qualifications of a uh, mesader kiddushim. So the question was posed, um, do, can a woman serve as an officiant uh, at a wedding as a mesader kiddushim?
1: That's a great question. Um, it's a question that I think we're dealing with now as I as I have my studies right my quest, the question always in the back of my mind is can I actually do this myself um I think it would it would depend as in technically as we saw the Masadir kibushin is just there to make sure that there are uh, that everything runs smoothly halakhti so according to that understanding of the messager kibushin's role there should not be an issue with a woman who has studied and has learned the halachot being able to stand there and make sure that all halachic parts of the wedding run smoothly. Um, as we saw that typically the uh, mesader kiddushin is the one also to say the birkat erusin, so when it comes to whether they should be the one to say that bracha or not, that'll be a whole other set of of halachic considerations on its own. And so even in those cases there might be people who might be comfortable with letting women be the mesader kiddushin, but not say that bracha, and then someone else would say it on her behalf. But in theory, in terms of just making sure all the Halakhic components are running smoothly, as long as we saw, as long as there's someone who is Halakhically knowledgeable enough, um, there should not be an issue uh, of that being a woman.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, Another question that was asked, uh, when talking about whether or not the Mesader, or perhaps Mesadere Kedushin, that needs to drink from the wine, um, as I guess a possible suggestion to address the issues of uh, germs and and both the the officiant and the couple drinking from the wine Could they pour some of the wine into a different different cup before drinking?
1: Uh, yes, so I think that that would be similar to what we have today um, In in Kiddush again, the, the model of Kiddush on Shabbat is very is very common and, and very familiar to us So the same way that even today often right we especially those um those fountains right? Everyone knows those beautiful Kiddush fountains where the the person making the bracha would pour Um, that will pour the cup into the the wine or the juice into the the fountain and everyone can get their own untouched, non-germed cups. Um, There there may be room to to say the same for for the the brachot at the kiddushin, where you can spill the cup into a different cup, pass it to the chatan and kalah, and if the masadir kiddushin is, is insistent on drinking, then he can do so in that manner.
0: Okay, great. And actually, additional questions that have just come in. Um, everyone's really fascinated by the shiur. It's, it's terrific. Um, <laughs> in discussing Asher Barah, and if you don't have a minyan, you're discussing in the context of uh, the subsequent the subsequent days after the uh, the wedding. What about under the chuppah? If there is no minyan, um, and, but they are conducting the suin, um, then can can uh, Asher Barah be, be recited in that circumstance?
1: That is a good question. I'm thinking about it for one minute. Um, it's a good, hmm, que- that's a tricky one. I'm not sure I know the answer to that one offhand. I would say here's how I would think about it uh, and how I would go about looking at this up in the sources. Uh, I would have to open up a book and go back and check. What we've dealt with up until now is that we've discussed in the context of a meal. The reason that um, the the Tuva there uh, suggested that we would need to have a quorum of three, we would have to have a zimun, is because the asher barak comes in the context of saying birkata mazon following the meal that we've had at the, at this festive uh, celebration, and therefore it would require uh, a quorum of three. I'm not so sure what we would say regarding a, saying a sherbara at a wedding without a minion and also without a meal, meaning it's not, in, it's not encased in this, um, in this context of, of the meal. That said, it sounds like from the other sources that we brought, that the distinction between the Sher and the rest of the berkot chatanim might already apply independent of this meal, meaning we saw that in the Gemara, they refer to asher as a unique element of the berkot chatanim without addressing whether we're talking about the meal or not. Um, and so therefore, I would have to go back and look at all the sources just to make sure, um, but it, it would depend on that question, meaning are the later sources that require there being three people relating specifically to um, Birkat chatanim in a meal setting and therefore um, being at a wedding is a totally different halacha question, or are they related?
0: Okay, thank you. And the last question that was asked, and with this we will uh, conclude, um, is again regarding asher bara and a situation where you're in sheva brachot um, and you don't have a minyan, but as you discussed, you you can make the bracha of sheva bara. The question was posed in a certain way, which it really can be asked either way. Um, It can be, can the Khatan be included as as part of the uh, the, the zimun? Um, and the question was posed specifically if one accepts a mixed zimun, that um, that if one accepts that that one can include women and men together uh, to count towards a zimun, can you have the khatan, the kalah, and one other person, and between the three of them, you can you can say asher
1: Sure. So um, yes, it actually is also for the birchot Chatanim in general, for the Tava Berchot, the Chatan just is considered one of, the, uh, one of the ten. The Chatan can be considered amongst the Minyan. So therefore, I would presume also in terms of the three, that would be okay. Um, in terms of those who hold Mikzimunim, I, I think there would be no reason to allow the Chatan and the Kala to be included. Um, many people, um, some people are comfortable having mikzimunim, like in general. Some, many people are comfortable having a Mikzimunim within the context of family. And therefore, even if it's like the Khatan, the Kala, and one of their parents, um, that would be uh, a case that many people in, in mainstream, somewhat mainstream circles would, uh, would allow to be a, 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 a legitimate mixed Zimun. And in that situation, I don't see why the Khatan, Kala, and one other person um, would, would not be sufficient to require a Shavara.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much. And on behalf of everyone here, we are so grateful for your leadership and your words of Torah. Uh, I'd like to share with, with all of our participants that for next week's she'er in the OTS Present series, we will have the pleasure of hearing from Ravioni Rosenzweig, Senior Lecturer at Or Torah Stones by Drescher Linnenbaum. The title of his she'er is Who's Afraid of Biblical uh, Criticism? That will be next Wednesday, June 24th, 12 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Israel time. Looking forward to seeing you there. Enjoy the rest of your day and evening. Thank you again for joining us.